The Weather Jazz Podcast. Almost anything can happen. Why? Because it's Open Line Friday. Welcome to Weather Jazz, a world audience podcast about anything and everything weather, science, and a whole lot more. I am your host and the creator of the Weather Jazz Podcast, Andre Bernier, and I'm the senior meteorologist on staff with WJW Television in Cleveland, Ohio. This is episode number 300. Wow, what a great landmark. And it's open line for Friday, February 25th, 2022. Now, yesterday, somebody sent me a wonderful introduction, one of those little, what I call, stingers, which sit in between the Weather Jazz introduction and the music bed that you're hearing right now. You hear this little stinger that often might introduce perhaps a certain aspect of the upcoming episode. Well, someone sent me a wonderful stinger, and they wanted to celebrate the fact that we had hit our 300th episode, and that we were doing an Open Line Friday segment. Now, I've received no other information other than the person's return email address and their wonderful introduction, which I really wanted to use today, but I haven't heard back from that person. I've wanted a little more information, such as the person's name and where they are from, because I wanted to properly acknowledge and thank them for their contribution I was able to incorporate it and get it ready for today. However, I have not heard back from that person, so I'm going to hold that back for the time being. And if you are listening and you're the person who sent me that MP3 file, please email me back with your name and where you're from, that kind of thing, so that I can uh, go ahead and tell the folks where this came from. Now, I know it was specifically designed for this episode. However, I will use it on Monday, even though that will be episode number 301, because I want you to hear this. It certainly blessed my heart to know that there are people out there that want to jump in and celebrate the fact that we hit this landmark, episode number 300. I look forward to hearing from you so that we can play it. And there's another reason why I will go ahead and uh, play this on Monday is the fact that we're going to separate today's episode into two parts. I had a wonderful conversation with a great guest today. I'll tell you more about him in just a moment. And our conversation went so long and it was so involved and so rich that I thought I've got to separate this into two parts. So over the weekend, I'll prepare the next one, which we will release on Monday, the conversation that I had this morning. So who is my guest and why is this such a rich interview? Well, today's guest recently published a book and the book is called New Earth. It is by Jeroen Neuenhove. I'm going to let him tell his story 
but he's originally not from Iceland, even though now he does live in Iceland. And that story in and of itself is truly fascinating. But Jeroen is also an accomplished photographer. Now, just imagine sitting in Iceland on March 19th of last year when the news broke that Fagradalsviak began to spew a lot of lava. There was an eruption, and Jeroen has always wanted to go and photograph an eruption. And now there are plenty of eruptions you simply cannot get close to due to their nature, their explosive nature. This was not one of them, though, as you fully well know. It's more like the Kilauea volcano in Hawaii that produces a lot of very quiet flowing lava. And now certainly you have to get out of the way and know when to get out of its way. However, it produces a much greater opportunity to capture on film what is going on due to the nature of the non-explosive variety of volcano that occurred in the Reykjanes Peninsula in southwest Iceland last year. So today, in just a moment, after the break, we'll go right into the conversation that I enjoyed with Jeroen, and it's going to be part one of a two-part series that we will conclude on Monday. Get ready for a great story. We'll be right back. Jeroen, welcome to Weather Jazz. Hi, thank you for having me. Or uh, as uh, you're becoming more proficient in Icelandic, uh, welcome to Weather Jazz. <laughs> well, the reason I'm having you on is your book is truly fascinating, and I'm holding it in my hand here. New Earth. And before I dig into your book, uh, I guess we want to set the table. Uh, you and I met in Instagram, and I'm not sure you know, what the common thread was, but I started following you, and I loved your photographs. Uh, and uh, we got to know each other a little bit, but I would love for the Weather Jazz audience to get to know you now. Where are you from? You're not originally an Icelander, but how did you get to become an Icelander? Yeah, so I'm originally from Belgium. Um, and uh, when growing up, I've always had, uh, thanks to my parents, I've had a really big uh, fascination for the north. Uh, we often went on holidays to Norway, uh, Sweden, uh, and I got to explore those places and they always left a really big impression on me. Uh, and then uh, at some point, I think it was because of the Sigros uh, Hema uh, DVD, like their music DVD. Mm -hmm. uh, this got me interested in Iceland. Like I also enjoy their music, but it was the accompanying footage that really triggered me. Ah, mm -hmm. and uh, because of that I got an interest in Iceland and uh, at the time I was um, uh, a leader in our local scouts movement and uh, I was responsible for the oldest uh, kids and mm -hmm. during that time uh, there, throughout the year we would organize these activities to collect uh, money and then the money uh, would be used for them to go uh, on a sort of um, uh, like summer camp abroad. It was something that we organized ourselves. So uh, then 
This was in uh, 2012, and in 2012, the Icelandic economy wasn't doing that well. So it was very cheap for us to uh, travel to Iceland. And I managed to convince them, like, we, we should go there. Like, this is your opportunity now. We are only uh, six people. We have this, this uh, amount of money. We can do this. And then we decided to go to Iceland. And the first thing we did when we came to Iceland was to... Uh, to go to Landmannalaugar, it's like a place in the in the central highlands, and from there you hike towards the south coast, um, and it's four days of hiking through some wow. of the most beautiful uh, sceneries you can imagine. Um, this left such a big impression on me that I kind of lost myself somewhere mm. there in the mm-hmm. mountains, and this took a really long time for me to place, like to give it a place in my life because initially I thought this is like, a, oh, I'm missing being on holidays and uh, I just want to go there on holiday again. And then I did. And then I went again and then again and again and again and again. Wow. And then I just kind of yeah, fell in love with the country and I realized that Belgium was not the place where I wanted to grow old. Um, mm-hmm. I decided to go for it. And then, uh, when I made that decision, I uh, at the same roughly the same time I met someone here, and then a year later I moved. So in 2016 I moved and then settled down, and yeah, now I have a family. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> yeah. fantastic. Uh, so, were you a photographer, or did you have an interest in photography at the time <laughs> back in 2012, or was that something that came later? Yeah, so I've always had an interest for photography uh, because when when I was a kid, I uh, found this old Canon analog uh, uh, camera. And uh, this is a camera that went with me on all these trips that I was talking about uh, before. And this kind of, yeah, I always had a really uh, big interest in it. And I always got complimented on, uh, even as a kid, what, good eye I had for composing a photograph mm-hmm. and then for some reason I kind of never picked it up again uh, until I went to Iceland uh, because of this trip I decided to spend some money on a on a digital camera and then I picked it up again and then things kind of grew as I was growing towards moving here uh, yeah so yeah, you moved to Iceland. You said in twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen. Twenty sixteen. And um, so my guess is that you were maybe in the back of your mind, hoping that someday you would be able to photograph a volcanic eruption or at least the artifact of a volcano. Uh, is that true? That's something that uh, that has always fascinated me, um, mm-hmm. and. Even before I moved, uh, there was the uh, the eruption before the last one was in 2014, 2015. Right. Uh, and I was actually in Iceland twice uh, to photograph this eruption. And I did not get the chance because the weather was so awful. They couldn't uh, fly over mm-hmm. the eruption. Uh, this is like for as long as I can remember uh, understanding what an eruption was. I've been wanting to see one. And this kind of got triggered by watching um, uh, documentaries on National Geographic about it. And I remember, uh, I don't remember their names, but there were these two 
French people who spent their lives documenting uh, eruption after eruption. And these are uh, yeah, like seeing people standing next to something that's so dangerous and so violent. It mm -hmm. intrigued me a lot uh, because I always assumed that this was something like you could not stand next to, like mm -hmm. it would be too hot, too dangerous, uh, just whatever you can imagine. It was, yeah, it seemed like this thing that is always out of reach uh, mm -hmm. to me. And then, well, yeah. Th take me fast forward to March 19th of last year. Uh, take me uh, to what was going through your mind when you suddenly uh, heard that Fagra uh, Dalsviak was, was uh, blowing, uh, blowing some uh, lava around. Yeah, I was uh, <laughs> extremely excited, uh, extremely excited. And mm -hmm. I was already prepared for this to happen uh, because the whole uh, period, uh, now a year ago, this time leading up to this eruption, there were a lot of earthquakes in the uh, area. And one of the things that became apparent after a few weeks was that there was magma moving towards the surface. They could see the epicenter of all the earthquakes moving slowly and slowly to a different spot. Um, once they figured that out, I knew like, okay, it's just a matter of time. Some, something mm -hmm. might happen. So I kept all my camera gear ready. Uh, my girlfriend, she knew that when this happened, I would just drop everything and go. Uh, like we had this like understanding about this. Mm -hmm. Um, and I went to buy a gas mask, uh, to protect myself. Uh, and we would just see what was going to happen. Uh, mm -hmm. and then the most brilliant thing happened. It was the, like for me, the ultimate dream scenario when an eruption starts that you can just, it, first of all, it's only 45 minutes drive from my house. Uh, but then it was also something I could walk to and I could stand very close uh, to, mm -hmm. which is, yeah, this hasn't happened in, in recent history. Uh, not in this uh, tiny scale, at least. Yeah, it was not the kind of eruption that was uh, going vertical. It was with the slow, uh, slow oozing kind that yeah, again yeah, yeah. you could could get close to. And uh, yeah. so could you see the glow of the of the magma uh, that night from your home, or did you have to get a little closer as you drove closer yeah, to the so, eruption site? Uh, not from my home exactly, because you're like just behind the hill. Uh, but oh, once okay. you get a little bit higher in Reykjavik, you could see the glow in the mountains. Wow. Um, and we spent uh, this night, we spent driving around the area trying to find a place where we could see it. And mm -hmm. at the time, we didn't know it was in a valley and that it was sheltered by mountains surrounding it. So it wasn't really uh, possible to see it, but we kept driving around anyway because, we were, <laughs> you know, I, I felt at that time I need to do something. Like I need to, I'm so close to right. seeing this. And uh, then uh, the day after we, uh, or like I drove there and left my car and then hiked to where the area was, uh, which was very, it was very challenging uh, because I followed the recommended route uh, by the government because the Icelandic government is, they're a little bit funny with this. Uh, they know they can't stop people from going there, but they will not tell you that it's okay to go there because it's obviously, it's an eruption, it's dangerous. Uh, but so they went on the TV and they said, 
uh, we don't recommend you going, but if you go, then you should go this way. Uh, and uh. then they uh, explained uh, there was a parking lot close to the Blue Lagoon, which turned out in the end to be the most horrible place to start hiking from. Uh, mm. Because you leave the car and then you have to walk through um, a solidified lava field, which is just going up and down and over the moss. And it was raining mm. that day and it was not a very nice day to be outside. Um, and I was soaking wet when I got there. But this determination of finally being able to see this, this is what just kept me going. And once you're there, you just forget. And funnily enough, I was completely dry when I left there because the lava just dries up your wet clothes. Wow. Yeah, that was my next question is uh, once you went over that last hill and you saw what was going on, um, what, what was your initial emotional state of mind? What were you thinking when you, when you actually saw what was going on? For me, this was like I stood there and I was just staring in front of me. Uh, mm-hmm. So I came from an angle where I'm on this uh, mountainside and then here down in the valley, you could see the two craters. And I overlooked the area and I was just like staring, like staring mm-hmm. and enjoying mm-hmm. the moment. That's something that's always been very important to me is not only photograph it, but be there in the moment and enjoy it. Uh, which is something that a lot of photographers seem to forget at times. Uh, mm-hmm. But then once I got over this initial uh, this initial amazement, I kind of almost ran down the mountain. Wow. Uh, because mm-hmm. I saw people r- walking around it. So I thought, okay, I need to be there. Like I need to go there. I need to stand next to it. And then once I was there, I... Um, started going through this like mental list that I made for myself because uh, because of this really long time of anticipation of seeing an eruption I had been researching how other people had been uh, photographing it and filming it and I had like um, yeah sort of made like a game plan in my head and Mm -hmm. uh, that's also in part what, what I talk about in my book is how I tried to uh, approach this in a very methodologic, um, uh, like a, with a how methodically, yeah. yeah, methodically. Um, mm-hmm. And first of all, I uh, had like a lot of dream shots that I wanted to make, like make like a kind of bucket list. And I got to make almost all of those on the first day. And then because I was oh. there and I saw, ah. I saw things evolve. I. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, made a really big list of other things I wanted to do. Uh, but that's kind of how I approached it. And I felt uh, I was exhausted because I had been walking for four yeah. hours in the rain yeah. and over this lava field. And I was exhausted. And uh, I had uh, said to myself, I would uh, go back down from the mountain before it got dark, which is not what happened because I was so excited and so in the moment that I just stayed there until it got pitch dark. Mm. Um, and yeah, this was just incredible. Like this, this idea of uh, seeing the new landscape being formed next to you and you just standing there and being part of this moment. It's so unique and mind blowing uh, to me. And it was, it was sending lava down uh, into a a, um, a valley, and I'll try to pronounce it, Geldinger Gelder, 
Uh, I don't know how close. That's right. Uh, Which means Valley of the Castrated uh, Rams or Lambs or some such thing. Apparently, maybe that's how it got its name from from a farm a long time ago. But that valley is no longer there. I mean, it it was it's completely filled up now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, correct. So it's wow. I mean, it's technically there is still a little bit of a valley, uh, Mm -hmm. but it's pretty much like like the the first day when you got there, you needed to descend very far down, Uh, Mm -hmm. and then uh, now if you go there, uh, you go up, and then there is no almost no going down anymore because it's pretty much filled up. It's flown out of the whole area. Mm. Uh, now, had that continued, yeah. uh, I understood that uh, 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 Grindavik or Grindavik okay. uh, was, was potentially, and the Blue Lagoon, but potentially uh, in the lava's path, had it kept going for several more months from what I understood. Uh, but this was the ideal eruption and the ideal time because it didn't affect any part of the main road didn't affect any any significant population area it was kind of out of the way so really this was an ideal eruption for iceland wasn't it yeah sort of uh they're they refer to it here as a, a tourist eruption uh, ah, which, very good. Yeah, which uh, yeah. it's a very good uh, description. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it didn't really, uh, it didn't uh, cause anyone harm. Uh, it didn't destroy anything, um, mm-hmm. and it wasn't even that close to Grindavik. Like it would have had to go for many, many months before oh, okay. it. Could, uh, mm-hmm. Like it was a possibility, but by the time it would have reached crucial infrastructure, they would have found a way to deflect it uh, mm-hmm. somehow. And uh, one thing that I've noticed uh, is that it's uh, it's very unpredictable in the sense that it really depends on how it uh, uh, deflects itself because the lava it solidifies and then it forms a barrier for itself, so it can pretty mm-hmm. much go mm-hmm. go any place. Um, and yeah, it's been it's been a very uh, friendly eruption, probably the most friendly eruption uh, in recent history. Uh, but of course, that might not always be the case. We're going to stop right here in today's interview with Yaron. When we come back on Monday, we will finish up with part two and some of the very specifics of his book, the book called New Earth. If you'd like to learn more about New Earth, all the links have been provided on weatherjazz.com episode number 300. And of course, I'll have the same links available on episode number 301 when we release that on Monday. Well, today is Open Line Friday. Love Fridays. I get to brag on everybody that steps alongside me to make this program not only possible, but to make it shine in ways that, at least solo, I could not do. So my sincere and grateful thank yous go out to those of you that partner with Weather Jazz as supporters. Victoria Singer from Vermont. Kian Galunas from Vermont. In the state of Ohio, Dale Osborne, Christine Barnes, Rose Moore, and Will and Tonya Krausen family. 
in Tennessee, Andrea Rich and Bill Martin in Florida. Please consider adding your name to that list. It's very easy to come alongside this program and to make it what it is. The more, the merrier, as I like to say. Just go to weatherjazz.com and click on the supporters tab at the very, very top. And all of the instructions on how to do that will be available. In addition to that, you'll see the names that I just mentioned here moments ago. Also, if you'd like to contact me, just click on the contacts tab. Also, at the top of weatherjazz.com, there are a couple of ways. And yes, I read and listen to every single message that comes my way, whether it's by email or by the audio file that you will be leaving when you call the Weather Jazz Podcast Audience Connect Live, which, by the way, is 234-525-5888. So when we come back on Monday, we will pick up where we left off with Yarun on episode number 301. Have a great weekend. Looks like things will finally start to quiet down across much of the country, albeit maybe a little on the chilly side, but we're not done with February just yet. And March can be kind of a finicky month in a lot of places too. So we'll keep an eye on the weather and we'll catch you on Monday with part two of my conversation with Yaron. We'll see you then. Weather and science across the globe.